Welcome to episode 11 of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. We have been examining the section in the Gospel of Matthew known as the Sermon on the Mount. Contrary to its traditional moniker, however, we have been considering it not as a sermon in a religious setting, but as a speech given by a social revolutionary laying out his vision for a movement for a new society. In the last episode, we saw how Jesus uses Israel's law as a starting point, and then urges his movement to do more than the law requires, to go beyond the law to a higher standard of justice and mercy. As we continue, it is important for us to remember that this is a speech. In other words, it employs a rhetorical strategy rather than tight legal logic. And as the speech continues, the references to Israel's law become less specific. He cites not actual law, but general principles as they are popularly understood. And that makes sense. When you're inspiring people to a higher vision, you don't make tight legal arguments with precise legal citations. Instead, you appeal to the general tradition that the people are familiar with and make your appeal from there. So Jesus continues to start with these principles from Israelite law and tradition and challenges his people to take these ideas even further. As I explained in the last episode, he begins by building a fence around the law, an ancient rabbinic practice of exhorting people to go beyond the law so as not to be in any danger of transgressing it. Although this practice of building a fence around the law was originally a strategy to protect the law that was considered sacred, Jesus uses it as a clever rhetorical strategy to inspire his people to greater justice and mercy in building a movement for a new society. Even when his citations become more loose, when he appeals to general traditional understandings and principles, he continues to build a fence around the tradition, exhorting his movement to go beyond the tradition to build a radically egalitarian and inclusive society. Now, some of his ideas are not entirely new. In fact, the one that he ends with in the section of the speech that we will examine today the admonition to love your enemies, is not new. It is found in several places in the ancient literature of Israel. But it exists there alongside other texts that sanction violence against enemies. You see, Israel's literature contained diverse opinions and points of view. So this idea of loving the enemy had been largely forgotten. Jesus resurrects this idea for his movement. Jesus' movement for a new society will ultimately be a movement that leads him and many others toward the cross. The cross, as we will see in future episodes, will be a path to victory over all oppressive powers. But the cross does not merely defeat enemies of the movement. It lovingly invites them to repent and join the movement. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.
We begin with a passage that sounds peculiar to our modern Western ears, a passage about swearing oaths. Matthew 5, 33-37 Again you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. So what's the big deal about swearing oaths? Why does this matter? Well, if you're trying to create a transnational movement for radical equality in the first century Mediterranean world, it matters a lot. You see, oaths implied dishonesty where they were not used and were therefore part of a larger cultural norm that allowed lying to social inferiors and outsiders, as well as to social equals with whom you were in competition for honor. So oaths were part of a larger social matrix of extreme inequality, exclusion, and competition. Some oaths were even considered non-binding and were used to deceive people. Radical movements tended to reject the whole practice of oath-taking for this reason. For example, the Essenes. The Essenes were another radical movement of the time, and Josephus, the great first-century Jewish historian, had this to say about them. Any word of theirs has more force than an oath. Swearing they avoid, regarding it as worse than perjury. For they say that the one who is not believed without an appeal to God stands condemned already. Another Jewish writer, Philo of Alexandria, gave a long list of the virtues practiced by Essenes and included among them careful avoidance of oaths and falsehood. So oaths were often disdained by movements that rejected typical social norms. And anyone wanting to establish a movement for a radically egalitarian society across tribal, national, and ethnic affiliations would want to reject all that oaths implied. Simple honesty provided a much surer path to equality and solidarity. Next, Jesus moves to the subject of violence and resistance in verses 38 to 42. For much of my commentary on the next few verses, I am indebted to the work of the late great Bible scholar Walter Wink. The first thing that Wink brought attention to is that this passage has suffered the unfortunate history of bad translation at a very crucial point. Jesus exhorts his people to Nonviolent resistance. But when the text has been translated into English, it invariably gets rendered, do not resist. The Greek word that gets translated resist is a word that often referred to armed resistance. So I will translate the phrase as some commentators have done, do not violently resist. Let's read the text, Matthew 5, 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not violently resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, 
turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse any who want to borrow from you. These instructions don't make much sense to the modern Western reader. It sounds like Jesus is telling his followers to be doormats for anyone who wants to abuse them. But in a first-century Mediterranean honor-shame context, Jesus is being witty and suggesting clever ways to shame oppressors. He is not advocating non-resistance, but non-violent resistance. First of all, we need to be aware that the gospel writer is writing toward the end of the first century, after the failure of the Jewish peasant rebellion against Rome and the ruling elites in Palestine. In the year 66, the peasants rose up against the Romans and the elites who did not join them. They were able to take Jerusalem and expel the Romans for almost four years, but in the end, the Romans came back and crushed the rebellion. Thousands of Jewish peasants were killed, their villages burned, thousands were taken into slavery, hundreds were executed on crosses. Violent rebellion had failed. This tragic history forms a large part of the backdrop of Matthew's text. So Jesus in Matthew prescribes clever, nonviolent resistance. When he counsels his followers to turn the other cheek when slapped on the right cheek, this scenario has very particular honor-shame dimensions that are not apparent to the modern Westerner. To be slapped on the right cheek means to be backhanded, since the slap is done with the right hand. Not only are most people right-handed, but in the first century Mediterranean world, most tasks were undertaken with the right hand, even by left-handed people. Now, a normal slap with the right hand lands on the left cheek of someone facing you. To make it land on the right cheek, the slap has to be a backhand. In the first century Mediterranean world, a backhanded slap was the sort of slap that a person of superior social rank would deliver to someone of inferior social rank. By describing a scenario in which someone gets backhanded, Jesus evokes a picture of the abuse that oppressed people endured from their oppressors. For example, a master backhanding a slave, a wealthy landowner backhanding a peasant, or a Roman soldier backhanding a Jewish provincial. By turning the left cheek to the superior, the offended person demands to be slapped as an equal, on the left cheek, thereby claiming equality, rejecting humiliation and subordinate social status, and shaming the one slapping. In this way, the person is neither resorting to violence nor accepting the oppression. Jesus then quickly offers a second scenario, one in which a person is sued for his or her outer cloak. While being sued for an outer cloak might sound strange to us, apparently it was such a common occurrence for peasants in antiquity that Israelite law in the books of Deuteronomy and Exodus had to limit the taking of a peasant's cloak to only daylight hours. The cloak, according to this merciful statute, had to be returned at nightfall, so that the person could sleep in it. The scene that Jesus describes of a peasant being sued for their outer cloak 
evokes the all-too-common real-life situation of peasants being taken to court after falling into debt to wealthy elites, a theme that Matthew will return to repeatedly. Jesus counsels his peasant hearers when they find themselves in such a situation to give not only the outer cloak, but the inner cloak as well, when being sued for the former. Now, what might not be evident to us, the modern readers, is that surrendering the inner cloak would leave the person naked. People in antiquity typically only wore two pieces of clothing, an outer cloak and an inner cloak. When both went, the person was left naked. And a scenario involving nakedness involves some pretty steep honor-shame undercurrents. Again, we modern Western readers might assume that the naked person is shamed. But in many honor-shame cultures, the shame falls on the one looking on the naked person. So by removing all clothing, the peasant would bring shame on the elite creditor and expose the absurd injustice of a situation in which a wealthy landowner can deprive a peasant even of his or her clothing. Another clever strategy of nonviolent resistance. Now, when I first heard this honor-shame dynamic being used to interpret this text as a strategy of nonviolent resistance, I was a little skeptical. And then one morning, I opened the newspaper and I found a contemporary 21st century occurrence of this precise nonviolent resistance tactic being used in Nigeria. In the summer of 2002, hundreds of women in southeastern Nigeria nonviolently occupied multiple Chevron Texaco oil facilities, demanding jobs and a share in the profit for their people. American oil companies had been pumping out the oil from the region for decades with little to no benefit for the locals who suffered from the environmental impacts of polluted water and agricultural land. The women were not only able to occupy the facilities and shut down the operations, they were also able to hold the male employees hostage for days. Their only weapon was the threat of disrobing which the Associated Press described as, quote, a traditional and powerful shaming gesture. So a modern-day example of nonviolent resistance through the power of shame by disrobing. The distance, it seems, between the world of the Bible and that of the modern Western reader is in some ways more geographical and cultural than it is temporal. Jesus' third strategy is aimed at the Roman occupation. The instruction to carry someone's pack an extra mile might sound generic to us, but to the original audience, it was making a very specific reference. A Roman soldier could force a peasant to carry his pack one mile. By carrying the pack an extra mile, the peasant might not only shame the soldier, but also get him into legal trouble. There were legal penalties that a soldier might suffer for abusing a peasant by forcing him or her to carry his pack an extra mile. And those penalties included flogging, 
reduced rations, reduced pay, reduced rank, or discharge. By carrying the pack an extra mile, the peasant would be taking charge of the situation, bringing shame on the soldier and even possibly getting the soldier into trouble. Jesus ends this section with a clever admonition to give to all beggars and to lend to all borrowers. The last two scenarios just mentioned can be understood as elites or soldiers trying to take property or borrow labor from peasants. With his summary admonition to give to all beggars and lend to all borrowers, Jesus cleverly puts the powerful oppressor in the role of a beggar or a borrower. In terms of honor-shame, Jesus has turned the tables. He has flipped the script. Jesus then culminates this section of his speech with an even higher principle than bringing shame on the enemy oppressor. He challenges his movement to love them. Matthew 5, 43-48 reads, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, many people get hung up on that last line, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In fact, whole modern Christian movements have twisted themselves in knots trying to convince their members that they can reach moral perfection. But this line is probably paraphrasing Leviticus 19.2, where God tells Moses to tell the people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Matthew's Jesus is trying to define or redefine holiness for his movement. Holiness, or perfection, Jesus says, is found in love, especially in love for one's enemies. Jesus leads a movement of peasants and marginal people for a new society of radical equality and inclusion, a society of justice and mercy and love. This love and mercy has to be extended to everyone who seeks it, including the oppressors who repent. If anyone is categorically excluded with no chance of redemption, it won't be a society of mercy and love. If hate and revenge are allowed to fester in the movement, it will destroy the movement from within. In one sense, this is not a new concept. Ancient Israel's literature included this idea. The book of Jonah, which Matthew's Jesus will cite twice, is a story of forgiveness for an empire that brutally oppressed Israel. What perhaps is new is this movement of peasants and other marginal people who will stand boldly against the oppression, willing to die for their vision of a new society, but not willing to kill for it, all the while standing at the cross, willing to forgive anyone who will repent and join them. It is ultimately a movement of love, with the firm belief 
that love will overcome all evil and oppression. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been Episode 11 of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.